1 Timothy chapter 2. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator, also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony born at the proper time. And for this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Let us pray. Father, we do ask that you would continue your blessing upon your word as it is read and preached, as it is heard, as it is brought into our hearts. We pray that it would find fertile soil, that it would be planted deep, and that it would produce a a crop, a harvest of righteousness for your glory and for our good. We ask that your Holy Spirit would be with us this evening as we look at your word, teaching us and nourishing us, washing us with the water of the word. We ask that we might be further sanctified by this word, that you would renew our minds and conform our minds into that of Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, this passage um, is, a, is a slight shift in direction from the Apostle in his epistle to, uh, to Timothy, as he has left Timothy in Ephesians, in Ephesus. He's beginning now to address more practical matters with regard to the congregation there, but first of all, we need to deal with the elephant in the living room. Those of you who are not familiar with that phrase, just envision an elephant in your living room. It's something hard to miss. And that is verse 4, chapter 2, verse 4. We know um, that is this verse that God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth is the definitive proof that God wants to save every single person in the world if only they would be willing to be saved. This is one of the proof texts for the Arminian doctrine of free choice, teaching us as it is maintained that it is God's will that all men should be saved, all as in each and every one. But that the problem is, is that men themselves are not all willing to be saved, and so therefore some men aren't saved. Calvinists retort that uh, they oftentimes use the standard, uh, all does not always mean all, which is true, but often overworked, because sometimes all does mean all. Fancy that. Other arguments against the Arminian uh, position is that the word used for, in the New American Standard, desires all men to be saved. Some of your Bibles may say wishes some men to be saved or all men to be saved. Uh, Some may actually say wills all men to be saved. There are, in fact, two words in the Greek, uh, thelema and and bulemai, that both mean to will 
And so subtle distinctions are made between the two. And it is said here that, that, that God, God, you know, he wishes that all men would come to the knowledge of the truth, but, but he doesn't actually will it. Now, that's an untenable argument on two accounts. First of all, uh, the words are interchangeable. And they are used interchangeably in the Greek. Um, it's just like we have many words that can be, we have what they call synonyms. You know, we can use different words, uh, thankfully, otherwise our writing would be unbearable. And, and Paul is using a word here, not meaning it to have any distinction with the other word he might have used. But the more important objection to that whole scheme, that, that this desire, this will, is not the same as that will, is that God is not thus divided. What he desires, he wills. He does not have a separate desire from what he wills. He's not divided like that. We may be divided like that because we are not sovereign. We cannot bring to pass what we will. So there are many things we desire. There are many things that we desire that we have no power to will. But God is not thus limited. Another argument that is used by Calvinists uh, against the Arminian position is that God wills that men from all sorts and from all nations will be saved and come to the knowledge of the, of the truth. And in fact, in this passage, he's even including politicians. Uh, so clearly, we're talking about God's offering of salvation or bringing about salvation to all manner of men, rather than each and, and every man. But within the context of the passage that we've just read, I think that William Mount's um, in his scholarly way, puts the issue correctly when he says, the theological debate over the issues concerning the Christian doctrine of election arising from verse 4 was not the focus of the text in its historical situation. In lay terms, that means that's not what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about election here. The verse is difficult, David read a verse from 2 Peter chapter 3 that is very similar to what I just read from 1 Timothy chapter 2, that um, God, in chapter 3 verse 9 of, of 2 Peter, is, is not willing that any should perish, but for all to come to repentance. You know, these are passages that um, are, are difficult for us when we come to the issue of election and God choosing from eternity past those whom he will save. But what it boils down to is what do we get, what do we arrive at if we take verse 4 at, at face value? In other words, if, if we accept the Arminian interpretation that God indeed desires that all men should be saved, then one of two things comes to pass. Either God does not get what he wants, or all men will be saved. Neither of those are, are biblical. The idea that God should not get what he wants is, to me, quite frightening. The thought that man, in his own fallen will, could somehow be more sovereign than God is disturbing. And as we read the scriptures, we, are, we do not come away with the idea that we're dealing with a God who does not get what he wants. He, will, he wants and he wills that which is good, that which brings him glory, and he attains what he wills. The idea that all men will be saved is not only unbiblical, it is 
also disturbing because it makes a mockery of moral distinctions. It makes a mockery of our understanding of right and wrong because it says that no matter how a man lives and what a man does to his fellow man or to his God, because God wills it, he will be saved. So in other words, the Arminian interpretation is just frankly impossible. And so we have to conclude that either Paul is not talking about universalism, in which all men get saved, or Arminianism, in which men themselves determine whether or not they get saved. That's not what Paul's talking about. Or we conclude that Paul is theologically inconsistent with himself. Because over in Romans 9, he's talking about election, and here in 1 Timothy 1, he's talking about what we might say is, is free will. But Paul is not theologically inconsistent. He's just simply not talking about election here. He's using the term all within a context of globalism here in this passage, but also within the context that is not a treatise on justification like we find in Romans chapter 9, but rather a pastoral epistle. In other words, a letter to a man who is pastoring a church. It's a letter about the church about us. It's a letter in its initial writing about the church at Ephesus that had certain problems, primarily with those who were perverting the gospel, who were teaching as truth what was a lie. And so it is, by extension, a letter to every church, every congregation, and every pastor who ever was and ever will be until the Lord returns and so I, I really want to get rid of the elephant in the living room, push him into the kitchen at least. We're not going to thoroughly exegete the doctrine of justification and election. Rather, we're going to look at what Paul's saying when he really draws our attention very clearly in verse 1 when he says, first of all, argue about election. No. I don't know. I think maybe verse 1 should be something that especially Reformed pastors and theologians should, um, should have written across their forehead and phylacteries and, you know, on their wrists. First of all, pray. Okay? He's now moving into a practical application with regard to the life of the church and we're going to see, I think, what the, what the import or what the focus of this is supposed to be here in a few minutes. But he begins by saying, foremost of all things, literally, pray. He says, first of all, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men. Now, we're going to see that he uses the word all four times in seven verses. There's a certain universalism that Paul is bringing to us in this passage that, that we as, as advocates of, of divine election and also particularism need to hear. We can't deny the Word of God. We can't, we can't reinterpret it to fit our theological framework. We need to hear the Word of God. And Paul says, all, 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 and then he finishes up, Every place in verse 8. All, 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 every. Let that, let that impact you. 
a universalism that does not mean that every single man, woman, and child in the world will be saved. But rather a universalism that, that we, we cannot turn into an elitism. We, we cannot put limitations on it. And perhaps the most important principle for American evangelicalism is we cannot put political partisanship on it. He is calling for, and and verse 2 shows us, I think, what we must apply in our own day. He is calling for something that I would call nonpartisan prayer. He doesn't say, I urge men everywhere that entreaties and petitions and prayers and thanksgiving to be made on behalf of all Republican politicians everywhere. He says, for kings and all who are in authority. He, he singles them out. Now, they're, they're obviously a subset of this first group, all men. But it's not just an arbitrary, you know, like for instance, pray for the kings and it's a purposeful subset. In fact, I think we can interpret it even better by saying in, in verse 2, especially for kings and all who are in authority. This is the subset that I am particularly concerned that prayers be made in every congregation at all times for these particular men and in our day also women And then he goes into a discussion of what is good and acceptable to God. The context of verse 4 must be read in light of verses 1 and 2. Paul is saying, I want you to pray with these various forms of prayer, and there's a lot of ink spilled as to those four words uh, in verse 1, petitions, thanksgiving, uh, prayers, and entreaties, but basically they are roughly synonymous. They might have slight nuances In other words, what Paul is saying, that in every way you can possibly think of it, I want you to be going before the throne of God on behalf of all men. Now, there's a certain group of men in every culture that all other men are aware of. Now, there's a lot of men that we are not aware of, right? We can can lift up... Um, arbitrary and empty prayers for uh, today I want to pray for the population of West Virginia. You know, what, what does that mean? You know, I, and, and oftentimes we, we, you know, we, we hear prayer requests that are so obtruse and so distant that we, we really can't get our mind around them. But we know our leaders. You know, there's that group of people, whether at the local level, the state level, the federal level, the imperial level, whatever it may be, There's a group of people in every age and in every culture that everyone else knows. Not personally. So Paul is saying, you know, all of us down here in Ephesus, dealing with what we're dealing with here in Ephesus, we all have the same, you know, we look up and we see, who do we see? The Emperor Nero. One of the most wicked men and actually the the first to kind of officially begin persecuting Christians, he is the emperor at the time that this letter is written. Now, we've had some bad leaders in our day. We've had some really bad leaders in our day. We haven't had an emperor Nero in our history. Okay? So we can't say, as was said to me years ago, under um, or during the administration 
of uh, President Obama specifically said by a believer, I will not pray for him because he is the devil. That's not really given to us to determine. It, it is not given to us to determine which leaders, which people in authority for which we will pray, and, and those that we don't need to pray because they're not of our party. They, they actually um, advocate positions that we cannot, as Christians, accept. Well, so did Nero. Okay? You know, that partisanship, that, that part of the political process, Paul does not even bring in. Now, you might say, well, he didn't because he couldn't. That wasn't a democracy back then. Well, then I think you're, you're missing the whole point of Paul in relationship to the state, to the leadership, the church in relationship to the culture around it. You're bringing in a political aspect, a partisan aspect to, frankly, the gospel that cannot but corrupt it. And that has happened in our day. We have in the American church a very political gospel. A gospel that has aligned itself in an unholy alliance with a particular political party, a particular political agenda, and therefore has corrupted itself to the point that in many churches it is no longer the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is elitist. It is self-limiting. It is consciously applied only to one group of people and denied to others. And that is exactly what Paul is saying, I urge against. I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men. Four times. Verse 1, prayers on behalf of all men. Verse 2, for kings and all who are in authority. Verse 4, he desires that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And verse 6, the man Jesus Christ who gave himself a ransom for all. Finally, verse 8, Therefore, I want men in every place to pray. Again, a powerful, universal scope to what Paul is saying here. He sees the gospel as something that can no longer be contained in just one people. It can no longer be contained in God's people Israel or in that land around Palestine. But now it must, by its very nature, go out into every tongue, tribe, and nation. It, it, it must not be limited by the church itself. That, that's what he's saying here. Because there are other factors that will limit it. External factors that will prevent the preaching of the gospel, that will hinder its expanse. And these factors will be brought about by the prince of this world who operates through the civil governments of nations and empires. Whether they, they come across dressed as angels of light, you know, espousing family values and, and all of that, or whether they be openly hostile to biblical Christianity, civil government is not part of God's redemptive paradigm. It's part of his common grace whereby he allows man to bring order upon the earth. He gives the sword of the civil magistrate to the civil ruler, but not that of the spiritual realm. 
The weapons of the civil ruler are carnal. They are for the destruction of the flesh and the killing of the body. But Paul says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but spiritual. So he's talking about a warfare here, even though he's not using the terms. He's advocating an apolitical, political activism. If that makes any sense. An apolitical, political, or a nonpartisan political activism. He's advocating that the church not be removed from the world, because in that situation it has no impact. He's not advocating get away from the world, go into your cloister, have your own little community that doesn't touch the world and is not touched by the world. That is not what he's saying. He's saying you are in the midst of the world. Pray at all times and in every place for all men because this is good and acceptable in the sight of God. And now he says, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And what is the instrument that God has ordained by which that salvation will be brought to the nations? It is the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ. Paul hasn't changed his theme here. There are commentators who believe that that chapter 2 is a complete disconnect from chapter 1. It is not. In chapter 1, he's saying what he's dealing with, and that is the purity and integrity of the gospel. And now, in chapter 2, he wants to remove an obstacle, and that is the church itself hindering the spread of the gospel. Isn't that a ridiculous thought? That the church itself should hinder the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But as ridiculous as it may sound, it is historically common. In fact, I think we might find out when we appear before the Lord that the greatest hindrance to the spread of the gospel in any given age has not been the Roman emperor, has not been Congress or Parliament, has not been um, liberal activists, but rather it's been the church itself. Because the church, in verse 8, has been filled with wrath and dissension. The church, in verse 2, has been filled with political partisanship, where we refuse to pray for a particular leader, though we may acknowledge that God has sovereignly, we must acknowledge, that whatever president we have, whatever Congress we have, whatever Supreme Court we have, is by the will of God, who is sovereign in His providence. But we won't pray for a particular leader because we know better than Peter, who also says to pray for the king. Or Paul, who urges that entreaties be made for the king and for all who are in authority. We know better than Peter and Paul. We know what the, you know, if they knew what these men were like, they would never ask us to pray for them. Again, Nero. I mean, it's almost as if God waited until the most despicable man imaginable was the ruler of the known world to tell his people, pray for all kings and all who are in authority so that you can't argue that some kings and some senators and some congressmen are are beyond prayer. And what is the purpose of this? He says, In verse 2, in order that we may lead tranquil and quiet lives in all godliness and dignity. Now I want to ask you to try to follow Paul's logic here. 
The purpose or the goal of our prayers is not the passing of protect or particular legislation. It's that we might lead quiet and tranquil lives in all godliness and dignity. Verse 3, this is good and acceptable to God. Verse 4, who desires all men to be saved. The purpose of our quiet and tranquil lives is not to spend it on our own ease, not to relax, not to play golf, not to kick up our heels and wait for the Lord to return. He very quickly transfers is into a salvation purpose to the world. God's universal desire that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the church, of the, of the truth, which is to come about through the preaching of the gospel. Let me rearrange those three verses a little bit and kind of rephrase what Paul is saying. It is good and acceptable to God that we lead quiet and tranquil lives in order that all men might be saved. Somehow in Paul's logic, the peace and stability of our culture and of our time works to the salvation of the lost. John Stott says the logic of this seems to be that peaceful conditions facilitate the propagation of the gospel. I think he's right. I think the church in our day especially, and perhaps because of the political activism that is, that is so American, I think the church has bought into the notion that, that we are supposed to be praying and working for a particular political agenda. That we are supposed to be bringing about a moralism and an ethical regime through the government. And therefore we can support certain political parties that, that advocate what we believe in and we have to oppose those who don't. We pray for the one, we oppose the others and refuse to pray. But the spirit of Paul in this passage is the same as that that we read the Lord saying through Jeremiah. At the beginning and during the exile of Israel to back to Babylon, we read in Jeremiah 29 verse 7, And seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will have welfare. And that word welfare is that common Hebrew word shalom. In its shalom you shall have shalom. And how do you use that shalom? To the glory of the God who has brought you to where you are. We are exiles just as they were. Clearly throughout the New Testament, we are shown to be pilgrims and sojourners. This is not our home. We are citizens of another kingdom. And yet we are resident aliens, as one author puts it in his book, the title of his book. We are resident aliens. We live here by the providence of a sovereign God. And what is our responsibility? To seek the shalom of the city to which God has led us as exiles. Not to take our ease and acclimate to the foreign culture in which we live. That's not the purpose. At no time would God advocate that the Israelites in Babylon or Christians in Greenville acclimate themselves to the culture 
but rather that within that culture they might be light, that they might be salt, that they might be leaven. And in doing so, what they do is they seek the welfare, not the overthrow, but the welfare of the culture in which they have been embedded. That is the mentality of Jeremiah, of Paul, of Peter, and I would say of God, so that the gospel might be preached without hindrance. Historically speaking, any disruption in the social life and fabric of a people is a disruption in the function of the church within that land. War, civil strife, economic turmoil, and of course, persecution. Now we think of persecution as being engendered by the devil, you know, our, our accuser, our enemy. Through his minions, he brings about persecution, physical torment of the church. But really, persecution of the church is judgment upon the world. God is sovereign of all things, including times of persecution of his people. When he allows persecution by the world of the church, he is in fact judging the world at that time. Because during that persecution, the preaching of the gospel is severely circumscribed. The instrument of their salvation is of necessity withheld. As God's people are basically shoved underground and have to worship Him, which is our primary function, is to worship our God and our primary joy. We have to do it in secret rather than in public. Those who do venture out into public during times of persecution are very quickly eliminated. And we see that historically. Those who preached the gospel were burned at the stake during the Marian persecutions in England. That is a judgment. It, it is not a victory or a time of victory for the devil. It is rather a time of judgment of God upon the world. He is saying that through this persecution, remember, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His beloved. Those martyrs in those times of persecution are brought into the presence of their Lord. For them, it is a joy and a blessing. But for the world, it is a, it is a limitation and a withdrawal of that one thing that will bring salvation, the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what does the church want? Well, the church wants not a Republican or a, a Democratic president, a conservative or a liberal Supreme Court. The church, the church does not want even a, a libertarian. The church is not interested in, in the legalization of marijuana. The church is not particularly interested in the legalization of same-sex marriages. The church is not particularly interested in net neutrality, whatever that is, I just read it this week. You know, these things are, are what the world is interested in. But the church is interested in an environment in which the church can preach the gospel to the world without hindrance. Because you know, when the gospel has its way, and when the gospel has had its way, there's no discussion of same-sex marriages. There's no issue of abortion. 
There's no need to legislate morality within the community because amazingly the Holy Spirit does all of that through regeneration. The weapons of our warfare are not political, but they are, they are prayerful, they are spiritual. And so our prayers are not for or against this or that candidate or president or politician, but rather that we might lead quiet and tranquil lives so that we might, in whatever way God has gifted us, support the pure preaching of the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ. Knowing that if God wills that type of, of situation, that we can trust that he also wills the success of that preaching. If he gives us the field ripe unto harvest, then he will give us the harvest. But if war and civil strife and political dissension destroys the field to where Christians can't even enter it, that is judgment against the world. The gospel has been taken away. Only within an ordered society, John Stott again goes to write, is the church free to fulfill its God-given responsibilities without hindrance. Prayer for those who are in authority. Prayer for those who are in power. It is from this epistle, chapter 4, verse 13, that our congregation adopted many years ago the public reading of Scripture. Paul says to Timothy in chapter 4, verse 13, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. And so from that verse, the elders of Fellowship Bible Church said, You know what? We are going to give attention to the public reading of Scripture. And we are going to read through books of the Bible. Men of the congregation will lead us in reading in each of our services from Scripture. It is from this epistle, I believe, that we need to take the admonition to be praying for kings and for all those who are in authority. That as we consider our corporate prayer and we think of the things for which we pray, is it possible that we are not seeing the gospel successful because we are not praying for kings and all who are in authority. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. It ought to be good enough for us. And so I would admonish myself, David, Mark, the men of our congregation, to inculcate, to incorporate within our worship, within our prayer, because we are gathered together as Paul is admonishing here, urging here, that we lift up prayers, again, not partisan, not for this or that legislation or this or that politician, but rather adopting the universalism that is Paul's, knowing that his desire is God's desire, and that is that the gospel be preached without hindrance, that the freedoms that we now have to preach the gospel without fear of persecution, that they might continue and that the gospel might have its way in the hearts of the lost, knowing as we do that when God turns the heart of a fallen man or woman to himself, he will address the moral issues that we struggle with in our society. So let us pray in that regard. Take away partisanship from our prayers. 
Take away political activism as we know it from our prayers. Take away really the identity, the individual who occupies the office, and rather acknowledge that that office has been given by God, Romans 13, that it might be used unwittingly for the furtherance of God's glory through Jesus Christ in the gospel. Let us pray. Father, we do ask that we would indeed learn from your word and where we find ourselves deficient, that you would correct us. We read in, in Paul's second letter to Timothy that that is, that is the function of the word, the scriptures, to correct us, to reprove us, to instruct us, to train us in righteousness, that we might be ready for every good work. And this is good and acceptable in your sight, that we should pray for all who are in authority, regardless of who they may be, regardless of their position to you and you to them, but that by you and, and through your sovereign power we might lead tranquil and quiet lives for the purpose of the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would give us wisdom here at, at this congregation to put into practice what we read in your word that the men of our congregation might lift up holy hands in entreaties, prayers, petitions, and thanksgiving on behalf of all men, especially our president, our Congress, our Supreme Court, our governor, our local council, all who are in authority, that we might be free to live and to preach the freeing gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we ask that you would do these things for your glory and for the spread of that gospel. And we ask them in Jesus' name. Amen. Please rise for the benediction this evening, which is not in, intending, but uh, also not ironically from 2 Peter chapter 3. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen.